You're listening to the podcast of Shady Grove Presbyterian Church. The purpose of this podcast is to help you grow in your walk with Christ and apply his word to your life. My name is Ben Hine, and I am one of the pastors here at Shady Grove, and I'm joined by three other guests this morning. Uh, We have Senior Pastor Charlie Bale, we have Miss Tammy Jones, and Miss Becca Locos all here to join us. So thank you, everyone, for being here. Good morning. We are uh, starting, or I guess we are ending as we began with uh, our guests here. And so really glad you are here to round out the Gospel of Mark with us. We'll be getting into chapter um, 15 and 16 here in just a moment. But uh, bonus round question, as always, to start. Uh, We're in the middle of Advent season and just wanted to hear from each of you. uh, Maybe what are you most hopeful for during Advent season and uh, where are you struggling to find hope and joy during this Advent season. So who wants to start us off with that? (laughs) I think it's easy to be hopeful this Advent season because things have been so, so bleak. Hmm. So um, I'm hopeful for restoration and change and just increased fellowship. I mean, when you think about what you want 2021 to be like, it's pretty easy to see how, you know, (laughs) how a different you want it to be from the restraints of 2020 the anti 2020 yeah <laughs> well, yeah. you know it's not all bad but i really i think we there's a lot to restore yeah yeah it's good yeah back there charlie oh it's funny I mean, what we're hoping for we're sitting around hoping for a shot i mean <laughs> We're all waiting to get this vaccine. I mean, that is kind of weird when your hope is put into a needle and most people don't like needles, but, um, but yeah, I mean, this year has been, it's been crazy. And I think there's just a lot of things that we miss probably more acutely than we're aware of. We were kind of sharing in our staff, some of those things of just, Um, it just feels like there's a lack of purpose or we're just trying to get through. We're just trying to grind it out, but it's really hard to have a vision or clarity. It's like, okay, we're building a wall, but both your arms are in slings and, you know, go tackle the wall. It's like, okay, what are we supposed to really be doing? And I think one of the things we acutely miss is just ministering the gospel to one another or hearing people minister the gospel to you or you're reminded of, you know, it's really hard to do that in a worship service, much less if you're listening at home, you know, it's hard for that aspect to really happen. And that's something we truly need to hear the gospel ministered to to our souls. And I think that's something we acutely miss. And so, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining this question, you know, imagine if we asked this question to the shepherds, you know, that were outside of Bethlehem and say, hey, uh, how are you guys doing these days with, uh, <laughs> with Advent? Oh, what are you talking about? And then blink, the lights come on and everything's turned upside down. And um, I look, I mean, ultimately our hope is when the fulfillment of all of these things that are promised about Advent come to reality. So, the lion doesn't lay down with the lamb and all the animals are not in obedience at this point. And uh, the fullness of the renewed creation, which hasn't even really begun. I mean, until we're redeemed, they're not, the creation's not going to be redeemed. So ultimately our hope is ultimate, not mm-hmm. proximate. 
Becca? Yeah. I think it's been a good reminder to really hope and think about specific things to hope for because I feel like this year has been really long and a lot of us thought things were going to be short and things were going to be better. So it's like, oh yeah, by summer we'll be able to do more or things will be a little more normal. And so I think it's been good just for me to reflect on like things might not, (laughs) it has taken a long time and it will probably continue, but it's good to hope. But I think specifically I'm hoping um, just for peace and that is ultimate, like Charlie said, but also I found that in some ways I've had more time, but it's hard to really, even like when I am still to really be at peace and not have just racing thoughts or not, be really present with the people I am with. So that's what I'm hoping for this season. Yeah. Um, For me, I think where I'm struggling is um, uh, I'm definitely finding myself more irritable and impatient, um, which people were saying like early on was where they were struggling. And I, I wasn't really struggling with that, but really, it's been more acute like the last couple of months all of a sudden I just kind of really find myself like impatient and irritable uh, a lot more uh just kind of like being sure like confined uh, conf- yeah confined and just to the people you love the most to the people you love the most that and, really get on your nerves at times. and it's just like the routine <laughs> and the pattern has really just started to wear on me of like over and over and over again of you know and so that's been hard um Today, actually, I think is um, the one year anniversary of our young adults Christmas party. And so the the memory popped up on my Mm -hmm. Facebook and it just made me really sad Mm -hmm. because that was for me the highlight, one of the high points of like memories um, with the young adults group uh, where like we had just kind of like built this group over a year and a half or so. And uh, not even it was like nine months mm-hmm. and it was just this great event and like really wanted to come into 2020 like keeping that momentum going and 2020 has just been like <laughs> such a letdown ministry wise because it's been so hard to get people together for understandable reasons but i think that is just weighing on me as a disappointment um not not for anyone listening not, not a disappointment in people a disappointment in like circumstances and how sure. that's affected uh ministry and so that's weighing on me and so i think that's hard for me to be hopeful or excited it's hard. yeah i think it's hard for me to feel excited about anything right now is probably the right way to say mm-hmm. that um but yeah i think just being hopeful that um you know this isn't uh this isn't everything this isn't it, it will get better uh the lord is still at work and um you know there will we will get through this together and the church will survive and grow and thrive and all of that. And so I think maybe what I'm hopeful for speaking of that is I'm hopeful that once this vaccine rolls out, that uh, we'll see a real draw in our culture and in our churches of people wanting to get together, but maybe that's uh, being too optimistic. I think there's still going to be a lot of wariness and people will be out of habit and from getting together and, and all of that. So we'll, we'll see, but I'm hopeful for that. So um all right let's jump into mark 15 and 16. uh here we have what we uh you know jesus is coming bef- uh, to his trial and then he goes uh you know he's going to Pilate, and then he's delivered to be crucified and then we have the empty tomb and the women um at the empty tomb and then it sort of 
ends. And we'll, we'll get to where, you know, that question of uh, what's the deal with Mark's ending. Uh, we'll get to that at the end, but we have a lot to talk about before then. And so let's jump into this uh, scene before pilot. One of Mark's, uh, you know, literary techniques throughout his whole gospel is he uses irony a lot. Um, and so in particularly in these first 15 verses, you could really probably find a lot of irony in the whole chapter, but in these first 15 verses where he's before Pilate, where do we see some particularly obvious ironies uh, in this trial scene? What do you all think? Where can we see irony in this scene before Pilate? I would say the whole thing is just sad as you read 14 and 15 of the events of Jesus's life, of the disappointment of all of his friends, Peter, at the end of 14, has denied him. And this is one of the people that's closest and has sworn, no, no matter, even everybody else is going to fall away, but no, not I. And then, and it, Mark just keeps mentioning the chief priest. They're, they're mentioned like four times here to really let it be known that this is a good lesson in mob mentality, that the crowd is is being played and Pilate is being played. And the ones that are moving basically the the wagging the dog so to speak is that the chief priests are are behind the scenes stirring up the crowd and they know that Pilate himself it says wishing to satisfy the crowd he's a people pleaser Mm -hmm. and he's already had a, a insurrection before and so he's been put on notice that hey if you do this again you're gonna lose your job we can't have these Israelites rebelling these Jews and so he he's just he's being played and so the 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 irony the great irony is that the crowd is 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 screaming for barabbas and barabbas this murderer is now released and he's saying why what evil is i mean the, the questions are i always like looking at the questions and the questions are are you the king of the jews and have you no answer to make do you want me to release for you the king of the jews why? What evil is this? What has he done? And there's no answer given. It's just they just scream all the louder for him to be crucified. And so mob lust is is a scary thing that we can get caught up into. We don't know what's going on behind the scenes, but we can just be following a crowd of people and the whole crowds are deceived. Yeah. Becker or Tammy? What? would the chief priests say that their goal was? I mean, wasn't their goal to find and follow the Messiah? Like, I, I just find that ironic. <laughs> it is. You know. Yeah. Um, That's, yeah. They're the ones that should have known him, and they're the ones that are. Right. I think yeah. you also see it just in, uh, well, the charge is that he is claiming to be king of the Jews, and that, is who he is. And mm-hmm. you kind of get that like in verse two, Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers, you have said so. And mm-hmm. so he turns back the question and the charge to say like, you're proclaiming mm-hmm. who I am. And so what you're questioning, you're actually proclaiming. I like that. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. In that, in that instance, you know, Pilate is making the confession for Jesus mm-hmm. in a sense, like Jesus never, he doesn't say it about himself. Like Pilate says it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of, yeah, the irony there. 
Um, yeah, it was all, all good insight. I have a few more to add. I made a, a list of six ironies that I could identify. <laughs> it here is, uh, so one is the one that I think Becca just got at. Another one is the one that, uh, Charlie got to, um, actually didn't see the one that Tammy had, which is just a f- really more of a funny irony <laughs> than anything else. Um, you have pilot here is, um, he's, it says he's twice amazed by Jesus. So once it's here in verse five, the other one is in verse 44, uh, but it's the same verb. I think in the ESV, it says he's amazed. And then in verse 44, it says he was surprised. Uh, but in both cases, uh, same word, uh, it's not by what Jesus says, but what, what he does not say, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is kind of ironic. Um, so you ha- then you have, you know, uh, they want this murderer, this condemned murderer to be freed. Uh, when you have Jesus who's innocent of any crime. Fourth, I hadn't really picked up on this uh, previously until I was more slowly reading, but uh, Barabbas, his name means son of the father. Hmm. And so you have this, in a way, like the false son of the father is being freed mm-hmm. and the true son of the father is being accused and condemned. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a tragic irony <laughs> uh you have um pilot begins by seeking amnesty for jesus but then when he incites the anger of the crowd he basically is trying to get amnesty for himself but by the end so he begins by trying to get jesus free and then by the end he's basically trying to get himself off the hook um and then sixth kind of related to that is the governor this pilot character uh, should be governing the people, and instead it's the people who are really governing him um, in this instance. So I think there's just a lot of like yeah, irony and things being kind of turned upside down by the way things should have gone. Um, anyone else have anything to add to this scene? Just really a lot of like shenanigans happening here. <laughs> well, um, the judge. I mean, Jesus is the judge and he, the son of man. I think that came up in 14. But here he is on trial being judged and he has no one. He calls no one. It's not that he has no one, but he calls no one to testify. Uh And just the fact that he's the word in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And he chooses to say nothing Uh like, you know, he could have. um, What was the song? He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy Uh them, but he could have he could have changed the whole everything but he he didn't say anything yeah that i mean that's a miracle to me (laughs) i would not have been innocent without you know saying i was innocent yeah in a way like his strongest really the strongest words that he speaks up at least here in mark is on on the cross my god my Mm -hmm. god he doesn't defend himself you know and we'll, we'll get to that in a minute but really that's the one time he really speaks for himself is when he's hanging on the cross and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which uh, really powerful. And we'll, we'll talk about that here in just a moment. But um, so we get here to this trial scene. And so we've had, you know, he was before the religious leaders in chapter 14. And then, of course, we have the entire book of Mark with his uh, where he's really conflicted with uh, the religious leaders. And then we have he's before Pilate. So who do you think, okay, let's just take Mark, okay? How does Mark put this forward? Let's sort of put our blinders on for the other Gospels. But how, who do you think, according to Mark, 
is to blame for Jesus's death. Who do you think he's really trying to put the blame on? If anyone. The religious leaders keep coming up in the, I mean, like Charlie said, they're mentioned four times. Yeah. And, and that to me is uh, ironic and actually kind of uh, makes you stop and pause. Mm-hmm. Like these are the people, these are the religious leaders. These are the ones who claim to be God followers, law knowers. They really have nothing to learn yeah. about the law. We, we love Presbyterian form of government and I'm committed to it. But every reference to presbyteros, which is the Greek word for elders, in the Gospels is is a negative context. Mm. The the leadership was rotten. Mm. And so here, you don't get a positive reference to elders until you get to Acts. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and this, of course, isn't to say that Pilate, you know, was innocent or that the crowds were innocent. But you got, you two would both say, it seems like it's really the bulk of the blame is being put on religious leaders. If you had to, like, kind of land. Becca, would you agree with that? Or what do you think? I guess. I do have a hard time saying, like, oh, they're to blame because yeah. you can go back to Judas. You can go back right. to the chief priest. You can go to Pilate. But then the crowd also, they're still responsible. And that's really who Pilate's responding to is because there's so many of them that are, he's people pleasing. So it's right. just, yeah, but like in verse 11, it says, but the chief priests stirred up the crowd. Mm-hmm. So it just seems like they're, you know, not the good guys. Yeah. Well, and we'll see this in just a moment. But when he's hanging on the cross, I think, you know, I think the principle, if you had to say like who's to blame, kind of principally would might be religious authorities. Uh, but by the time he's hanging on the cross, I think we are, we are, we are meant to see that we are all implicated mm-hmm, sure. in it, right? So the bystanders are walking by and like shaking their head. Mm-hmm. The the authorities, the um, you know, the Roman governing authorities are the ones carrying out. So they're responsible. Religious leaders are responsible. The disciples are responsible because they just flee and abandon. And so I think when you see everyone being caught up in the scheme, I think Mark is also trying to say like no one is innocent mm-hmm. here. Um, yeah. in this even Peter right? right like if you were watching a movie and this was unfolding and Peter his best friend or one of his closest friends ditches him you would be like no 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 that that's wrong you know that script is not written right right so it it is all yeah yeah when you get to verse 40 you see who stuck with him yeah it's the women right, right. there's there's not a guy around I mean we don't even have mention of John and and Mark's account, but it just says there were women looking on from a distance, you know, and it names for them. The only positive guy reference you get is um, is Joseph of Arimathea. Yeah. Who was a member of the council, no yeah. less. And then the other one was the centurion, who is this hardened soldier who's there's seen a, people There's die another and, great irony. Yeah. 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 Right. That's yeah. a huge irony that... Um, it's kind of the exclamation point on the on Mark and how it begins with he's mm-hmm. the gospel and it says the Son of God in verse one of, of Mark mm-hmm. chapter one. And then at the end, this is what you get. And in between it's all son of man, son of man, son of man, but bing, this is the son of God. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing, uh it's hard, you know, you want to 
this is we're gonna have to get into this a little bit too when we talk about the ending of mark like mark is sufficient and true and authoritative and everything that he says you know because he's scripture but it is helpful to look at in this case some other historical information about Pilate and uh the gospel writers kind of portray Pilate as being a little bit like uh um what's the word that I'm looking for maybe like absent-minded or just sort of like aloof like you know and not really just maybe indecisive uh but some other writers Josephus and Philo uh Philo describes him as being inflexible, stubborn, and cruel are the words that Philo uses to describe him. And so you kind of have maybe some different pictures, but I was doing some reading on Pilate. Pilate had experience with uh, Jewish uh, protest. I forget what it was that he did um, previously where where, uh, the Jewish people had come and like, had a strong protest and he realized like they were like, they weren't going to budge. And so he like had experience with this before. And so that is kind of like factoring into, I think Pilate's response here is like, Mm -hmm. he's seen this before from them and like nothing he can do. Uh, There was something, yeah, he, where he had a decree. And then according to one of these historians, the, all the Jewish people based, he said, if you don't do this, I'm going to kill you. And so all the Jewish people got on their knees and exposed their neck and said, all right, do it. And that's when he realized, like, okay, this isn't going to work. And so he he went back on his decree. And so I think Pilate's had that this experience multiple times um, with the Jewish people and Jewish authorities. And so I think you re- you see that in his response of like, let me try this. They're not budging. All right, like, just do what you want. Like, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go there with you. Almost this sort of seems to be his attitude. But uh, he's not as you know he's not portrayed nearly as cruel in the in the histories as like Nero. But he is portrayed as a cruel, cruel man and a cruel leader. So uh, just remembering that about his character, which makes you wonder why why didn't um, Mark portray that? One one commentator I read, I thought this was interesting. You know, if if you take into account that if Mark is writing for maybe a primarily Roman Christian audience, uh, maybe he's trying not to like if the end they're already under persecution by the Romans, he's not trying to make that worse by writing anti-Roman propaganda in a way so like trying to make trying to really show like like yes Pilate's guilty but let's like really play up the guilt of the religious leaders who really who they really were it's not he's not wrong it's just he's more of a shift in focus and being wise to his context and so on but that's speculation uh for sure so uh which we're gonna speculate at the end of mark as well so um let's look at how jesus is mocked here in uh so verses 17 to 20 Verses 29 to 32. And then uh, I guess you could also go back to chapter 14 uh, a little bit and see how he's mocked there. But what would you say uh, for what particular things is he being mocked? And what do you think Mark is showing in this account? So maybe it would just be helpful real quick for those who are listening. Let me just look at 17 to 20 and um, 29 to 32. So 17 to 20 is where uh, the soldiers are putting on the cloak and they're making the crown of thorns and they're mocking him saying, hail king of the Jews. Mm. And they're striking him and and so on. And then 29 to 32 is, uh, it says, those who passed by him derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. So you have, in the first instance, you have the um, Roman 
soldiers mocking as, you know, king of the Jews. And the second one, you have really the Jewish people mocking him for not being, not truly being the Christ. Otherwise he would save himself. So what, um, what particular things is Jesus, Jesus being mocked for? And what do you think Mark is trying to show us in these dual accounts of being mocked? Go ahead, Becca. Oh, well, I think some of the irony comes back in again because he is, like you said, by the rule, he's being mocked for being the king and they dress him in the royal colors and they put a crown on him, but it's a crown of thorns and then they mockingly bow down to him, but he deserves all of that and that is who he is. Um, and then I think, um, yeah, and then they're mocking him also for his weakness, for not mm-hmm. fulfilling all, you've prophesied all of these things, you're not doing it without realizing that he's fulfilling them by what he's doing right then. And I think for me, it really, the way it's described in the emphasis on the mocking rather than just the physical pain of what he's going through kind of helps you implicate yourself. Like I could be saying this, I would perceive this as weak. I would wonder why he's not speaking up. Um, But that doesn't seem like um, justice and truth and things like that. And so it's a powerful description. I would encourage people to like listen to it being read because I really appreciated that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tammy. Well, both of the statements that they say in their mockery are true. Hail, King of the Jews, mm-hmm. and he saved others. He cannot save himself. Mm-hmm. I mean, he he saved others by yeah. this act, you know. Um, so the irony is rich there, yeah. too. Mm-hmm. And I, I just kept thinking of um, Philippians 2 that says uh, every knee would bow and mm-hmm. every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So like this top, the top. Uh, the first one you read, I'm sorry, it's the top in my Bible when they're, there's, there's, they're kneeling and worshiping, pretending, you know, mocking him. They're going to do that again mm-hmm. someday. And, um, and that's, that's helpful to remember, but like Becca was saying, I, it's easy for me to implicate the others. Mm-hmm. And I just can't believe there were people who were passing by. What's that about? Like, was this kind of crucifixion ordinary enough that verse 29 says those who passed by Mm -hmm. wagging their finger at him? Was that like so normal that they would just. Not only was crucifixion well known, but uh, messiahs were as well. There were plenty of people who said they were leading messianic movements who were crushed by the Romans. And so in some ways there's a. I'll look another one mm. kind of attitude. So, yeah. When you think about heaven <clears throat> and the angels that do his bidding and does, do his will perfectly. And so Jesus is in the palace in heaven and in the headquarters, the real headquarters, he's worshiped perfectly. And, and then he comes here and we're just given a snapshot of them pulling him inside and this is what into the palace, and this is how the insiders want to treat him, and they're roughing him up, and you know it says it's a whole battalion. So this is like hundreds of people, cohorts, six hundred people, and they're just um, showing what man is capable of in their rejection and hatred, and really the psalm too of you know these different. The leaders come together against the Christ and against 
the Lord and they're just wanting to get rid of this government and they yeah um yeah I, I agree with everything you all have said and uh you know I, I just think the mockery here is total and like I said earlier uh we're all kind of implicated in it uh because it's from bystander to authorities on both the Jewish and the Roman side and so even we're, the other people who were crucified it's so, yeah it's crazy. yeah right it really is uh just total and um but I also think here, you know, we see really proof. I mean, there's many proofs, but here is proof of the amazing difference uh, between God's way and everything else that we could conjure up as the way that we think should be the right way. Right. We just really see there's a, a huge difference. And um, God is accomplishing something that we never could have imagined or conceived of. Um, so in Throughout this chapter, throughout Mark, there's plenty of Old Testament connections we can make. So let's maybe try and focus uh, this next part of the conversation on maybe like verses 21 to 36. So him being led to the cross and uh, being crucified and crying out with his last breath. What are some of the Old Testament connections that we see particularly here in these you know, 15 or so verses? Well, Deuteronomy, I'm, I'm just going to read this uh, 21 it actually starts in verse 22, but it talks about um, a man being hanged on a tree is cursed. And 23 says his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. Mm -hmm. uh, and it goes on. But so that, you know, this was a fulfillment of a law mm -hmm. from uh, the Pentateuch. And a fulfillment of what he said in chapter 10 of, I'm going to give my life as a ransom for many. Well, how is he going to do that? He's going to become the curse mm. for us, which is what Deuteronomy 21, he's, he is becoming right. what Deuteronomy 21 says will happen, uh, which is being a curse. Uh, yeah. What other connections are there? Well, he's led outside the city to mm -hmm. be crucified, which was customary both for the Jews and the Romans, I think. Um, I think you see a lot of Psalm 22 mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. in the mocking when they cast lots. And then, of course, when Jesus um, cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah. Um, that comes to life. Yeah. So, uh, Becca, you mentioned outside the city limits. Uh, that's Leviticus 24, 14 and Numbers 15, 35 to 36. Uh, detail that. So and then, yeah, Psalm 22. And what's the other Psalm that's? We see a lot here. Anyone? Psalm 69. Also, you have, uh, you know, wine mixed with myrrh is Psalm 69, 21. Yeah. And then Isaiah 53, of course, mm -hmm. that, um, I mean, that talks very vividly about his, his silence as the lamb or uh, sheep that's led to the slaughter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Also, even the darkness, I guess, has mm -hmm. definitely you have different examples of God controlling darkness or darkness mm -hmm. at odd times throughout the Old Testament. Yeah. When part of the plagues in Egypt, there mm -hmm. was darkness as an act of judgment. Um yeah. Yeah, Amos eight, verse nine, in that day declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth mm -hmm. in broad daylight. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so uh, his, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22. Um, Psalm 22 and Psalm 69 both have this idea of the righteous person um, suffering without cause, right? Uh, so you have this righteous sufferer idea. Charlie, you're being um, curiously quiet. I, think I this was would just be... going to say Psalm 22 is, seems to be, there's four references to Psalm 22 and the, yeah. the mocking, the dividing his garments. And mm-hmm. that just seems to be the main, the others are, I don't know if they're directly quoted, but these other ones are strong allusions that we would meant to draw us to Psalm 22. The other ones are certainly there. Um, yeah. But I think Mark is trying to point us to Psalm 22. And even the last verses of the Old Testament, um, Malachi verse chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, and I feel like this is what the people were looking for when mm. it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And when they say they were watching to see if Elijah came, you know, it was like, I just, it sounded like uh, they came for the spectacle, you know, like, mm-hmm. and when this, when this Jesus died, oh, maybe it was like that. Another Messiah yeah. or another claim, you know. Yeah. yeah. You have, um, you know, just speaking to that real quick, I was going to mention earlier about, uh, you know, messiahs and these sort of revolts, messianic revolts being common when uh, Barabbas is described here. Um, where does it say this about him? Um, in verse seven, it says, among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection was a man named Barabbas, mm-hmm. right? And so we don't know what insurrection he's talking about, but Mark's audience would have known well enough that this was the insurrection, Right, so another one of these sort of revolts, perhaps a mess, one of these messianic revolts against Rome that was just squashed. <laughs> right, like it just was very common. Yeah. Like we we can squash this. Which then, by the way, uh, an apologetic p- point to this is why, if there were so many messianic movements before that were easily squashed by Rome and meant nothing, why did this one succeed and topple basically all of civilization, civilization, and revolutionize history? Right, you have to ask that question. Like, why this one among all the others did this one succeed? Um, and when, did the chief priests get as involved in all the others as they were in this one? I mean, there that would have had to have been a special committee. Yeah, a special <laughs> committee. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. We Presbyterians know all about the committees. Um, yeah. Well, you know, and someone thou dost protest too much. Like they're just, it's like you were saying, there's so much, so many reasons. And I believe in Jesus. So I, I don't have to be convinced, but yeah. even an unbeliever would have to look and say, well, you know, what was it about this one that was so, um, so, uh, threatening? Yeah. Yeah. The word that Mark uses, I think, I'm pretty sure, uh, I remember I, preached on this for Palm Sunday two years ago, but the word that Mark uses, I think is uh, listus, something like that for, I think Barabbas is described as a listus and the two criminals on the cross are described as a listus. And it's just this Greek word for robber, but robber in the the connotation of the word kind of has um, a Robin Hood slash mob mm. 
connotation to it. So robbers weren't just simple, not, they weren't always just simple, um, thieves. They were, uh, in a way, they were insurrectionists against Rome. Uh, but they also were kind of like a mob. And so the people supported them, uh, financially. And so long as they supported them financially, they kind of had physical protection from Rome, but they were also these kind of revolutionaries. And so that's, you know, Jesus is being hung and condemned against these other robbers, right? Kind of implicating like Jesus is just another robber, just another one who, and he's not, right? And that's the big, the big question on which human history hangs is why is this one so different? And why did this one change the history of the world? Um, all right. Uh, let's keep going uh, to verse 34. So uh, one commentator describes verse 34 as the most important and terrible question ever asked uh, when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So uh, several things that we could ask about this, and I'll just mention these and then let you all take it from here. But uh, what does this question from Jesus's own lips. What does this question tell us about what he is doing? What does it tell us about what the father is doing? What is really the answer to Jesus's question? And then how can, looking at Jesus here, how can this help us when we feel alone and forsaken by God? So who wants to start? Becca. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Well, we see that Jesus isn't in his death. He's not just dying like any other person. He is being forsaken by God and he's been united with God from the beginning during his Mm -hmm. earthly ministry. He says he's fully dependent on God. And now Mm -hmm. he's for the first time ever experiencing total separation, not just separation, but God's pouring out his wrath on him. Um, And so there's, he's bearing all of this, judgment that he and we we look at the people mocking him and saying he doesn't deserve any of how their mistreatment and yet he's taking on all of this that we don't see we Mm -hmm. don't even know exactly what it means and what it looks like but it means that he is forsaken in a way that and because of that we never can be to the same extent yeah yeah absolutely i think um everything you just said is encapsulated in i mean he was just in the garden praying can this cup pass from me? And the answer is no. And here we see he's drinking the cup. Like everything you just described is what it means for Jesus to drink the cup that he wanted, that he asked to pass. And, you know, God said no. So, um, Tammy or Charlie, want to add anything to that? Well, I, I just want to say one thing about what Becca said. I think it's not just the beginning of his earthly ministry that they were together. This is the beginning, you know, mm-hmm. of creation, like Jesus, the yeah. word was at the creation. And in verse 33, when he says there was darkness over the whole land, I honestly don't know where I got this, but the note on my Bible says it was the beginning of a new creation mm-hmm. like that. Nothing was the same now from yeah. this, you know, it was all being recreated. Mm-hmm. And um, when, when he says, when what we see is that he gave his life, he submitted to the will of God. And in so many times earlier, why didn't he say anything? Or why did he let them release Barabbas, who was clearly so guilty? You know, he, that's different. Like he didn't lose his life for me. Mm-hmm. He gave his life. Um, mm. 
submitting to to God's will. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty good footnote you got yeah. there. Yeah, <laughs> I, I like that. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, I mean, we see this is the beauty of like you taking the whole of Scripture because if you just read the Gospel of Mark and you hadn't read any of the other of the Old Testament or you hadn't read the rest of the Gospels, you would read this and you'd think, oh my word, this is just horrific. I mean, you're like, you don't, until you take in the whole and you realize, oh, this this puzzle piece fits that he's the lamb and he's being sacrificed and he's sacrificing himself and he has to turn away the father's wrath and he has to be the propitiation, the one that would bear God's wrath and and suffer under God's mighty hand. And that's what our sins deserve. And he's the propitiation for, for our sins in our place. And he is suffering and the father has turned his back, turned away from him and is pouring out his indignation and his wrath that in duly punishing sin Mm -hmm. on our behalf on the cross. And so it's a vicarious suffering of where Jesus is dying in our place and we see Jesus is loving us Mm -hmm. and the Father is punishing our sin instead of us. And so you see something, and so the question about, there was a song some years ago that, I think was uh, Andrew Peterson sang it and said it came to call, but it was called My God, My God, Why Has Thou Accepted Me? Mm. And it was just turning it around and that, you know, showing that we we should cry out just the opposite mm-hmm. and that we we are never forsaken. We've told he's, we would never forsake us, never leave us. And so what Jesus has experienced, uh, it, you know, hell on earth, literally, um, is something that believers will never uh, experience. Yeah. I think it's going to be one of these passages of Scripture where we can shrink back from really trying to explore what this really means or try to articulate what this really means because we want to be so careful in our theology. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to be so careful not to butcher our Trinitarian theology or to say something wrong about the two natures of Jesus here on the cross or, or whatever. And so we can shrink back from like really fully pressing into what it means for Jesus to be forsaken. Right. And so, you know, you want to be able to say Jesus was cut off, but as soon as you say that, you're like, did I just, did I just butcher, uh, you know, the simplicity of, of, of God and all of these things. And, and, you know, I think in some ways there has to be, we have to be able to say some things here and then admit like there's a mystery to this because of course like the the essence of of God the unity of God cannot be destroyed and yet Jesus was cut off right like so we have to be able to say he was forsaken mm-hmm. uh Keller uh the word he uses is what we see happening here is Jesus is being unmade which I thought was like a really interesting word he's being unmade everything that he once experienced and once was is unraveling in a way that he has never experienced before. Um, and again, you say that, of course he can't be unmade. Like you can't unmake what, what has been made, what is eternal, but there's something happening here and really pressing into the fullness of that Jesus being cut off the relationship between the father and the son, uh, you know, 
back being turned, darkness being experienced, weight of sin of the world coming upon him, no longer feeling the father's love and acceptance in that moment, but feeling full rejection. Like we have to be able to say those things uh, without, um, well, we, not without fear, but acknowledging we don't really know everything. Like we can't say everything about everything in this moment, but we have to be able to say these things. Cause I think that's what scripture is telling us. Jesus is fulfilling is being cut off for our sake so that we will know that God will never, that we will never be cut off right by God. And uh, that's just, I know for me, that's always my reaction is like, Oh, did I just say something wrong? And so I kind of shrink back. Um, well, we're, we're, we're delving into, things that are just unfathomable and yeah. quite frankly they're bigger than our brains can comprehend can there be a division within the godhead and you know these things that are just you know and people want to i mean he he's forsaken yeah. he's crying out that he's being forsaken by god the father he truly is not just feeling forsaken he is right. being forsaken and the reality is there isn't an answer to his question. Right. There's no reply back from God. And you think of, you know, God is constantly affirming he can't help but delight in his son, right? Mm-hmm. He speaks twice during his earthly ministry that this is my beloved son. And he's not saying that here. Yeah. I think it's good looking at looking at the question um, and knowing that it points back, it comes from Psalm 22 and a lot of the Psalms, well, all of them, but they're given also as a way for us to voice our own experiences and to cry out to God. And so that is a Psalm that we can read and we can, like Charlie was saying, we can feel forsaken, but we never are. Mm -hmm. Jesus actually was. And so the answer to Jesus is, is you are forsaken and it's for them. Mm -hmm. And the answer for us, when we cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is that we are never forsaken. He has already forsaken his son for us. And yeah. because of that, right, the father gave everything when yeah. he gave his son. And so why won't he also, I think it's in Romans, right? Why won't he also give us every good thing? Mm-hmm. Um, we have Absolutely. become his child because he gave up his child. Um, so, yeah, Emma. Absolutely. Can't put it better than that. Yeah, I don't like reading this section, but it doesn't have to do with my theology. It has to do with my shame is so Mm. evident, you know, Mm. and the innocence of Jesus is so, I mean, he was, he was, I say wrongly, he wrongly took the punishment, but it was right because it it was punishment. Certainly it was my sin. Um, I, Again, I'm sorry. I don't know the author of this, but the sin is expensive. Great, great yeah. footnotes. N- here. Nice nuggets. Well, yeah. Sin is expensive. Who is paying for yours? Mm. And I think what I see here, just in studying this, is the reminder yeah. that my sin, my sin, was expensive, and mm. every little sin—that's the, all the quote-unquote little sins that I can quickly excuse. Not the big murderers, you know. Those mm-hmm. are clearly expensive, but. My sin is just as expensive. Um, and this is the payment. This was, this is the, the consequence of that. And I don't like that. It's ugly. Mm-hmm. It doesn't fit nicely under the Christmas tree with yeah. a big bow. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for, that's, uh, was really good explanations. And I think, um, yeah, again, my, my impulse is definitely to be shy 
here on what's happening and uh, just a reminder of really pressing into all of this means and the significance for us as Christians is really powerful. So thank you all for sharing that. Um, let's look at, uh, we already said that in verse 39 with the centurion, that this is kind of the big exclamation point on Mark with him, his confession of the son of God. But let's take verse 39 in the context of verse 38, mm. which is where we see the veil in the temple being torn in two. What is the connection between verse 38 and verse 39 with Jesus? He dies, veil torn in two, Roman centurion confesses he is the son of God right away. What do you guys think is the connection here? Wow. Good question, Ben. <laughs> well, I think for us to see that it's torn from top to bottom and not bottom to top for starters is that God did this. God accepted the sacrifice mm -hmm. of his son. And so that veil is what separated a holy God from a sinful man. And don't dare come into this holy of holies because you are sinful. And so Jesus now has offered up himself. And, you know, and you read the Old Testament. I mean, they would throw the blood everywhere. And I mean, it was just, you know, they're just chucking this stuff everywhere when they would go in for the day of atonement and jesus here as the passover lamb has you know no plague is going to befall us now and now man has been made right again with god and so god has removed the barrier and so it's from top to bottom is that god has just you know pulled the curtain and just ripped the curtain down and i hadn't thought about the connection between this and the centurion but i would i would think it's because this is this is God's son that he's offered this sacrifice for us one who's fully God and fully man and God is pleased to accept uh you know the Hebrew word for anger is the word af and it refers to nostrils and so God's nostrils are angry at our sin but then this sweet smelling aroma of what the sacrifice is called in other places in scripture comes up and pacifies this, the nostrils is the imagery of that God has now accepted this sweet smelling aroma of his son and the temple or the veil is torn in two. Yeah. Let me just interject real quick for a little bit of context. And I'm interested to hear if Tammy or Becca has something to add, but uh, Charlie mentioned the, the Holy of Holies and the curtain there. Uh, there's actually uh, at least two curtains uh in in the temple you had one for the holy of holies which, se which separated everybody uh, except the high priest once a year and then you also had the curtain between uh the court of israel right which is where male israelites could go into and nobody else could enter into and so there's kind of the question of which curtain is it talking about um not going to get into all the details but i think there's good enough reason to exegetical reason to think that it's the holy of holies uh curtain um and one, one reason for that is in the Old Testament, in the Greek Old Testament, you had different words for both curtains, and the word being used here is the word for the Holy of Holies, uh, not the one being used for uh, the court of Israel. And I think there's more significance if it's the Holy of Holies. We're not just talking about like Gentiles can come into where everyone else could be, but everybody can now come into uh, the full presence um, of God. So I just want to jump in with that context. Uh, Becca or Tammy, anything to add on connection between 38 and 39 well i think the tearing of the curtain like you guys have been saying symbolizes that 
there is now complete access to God. And um, the centurion was facing Jesus being crucified. And especially if it was the Holy of Holies curtain being torn, it's not like he saw the curtain being torn. And then he said, mm-hmm. it. it's, it's, you have this image of the curtain being torn and now we can see. And then you have the centurion who yeah. now he sees, he yeah. sees who Jesus really is. Hmm. And he saw how he died. Right. Mm-hmm. And he had seen probably hundreds of people die. So, um, I love the fact that the curtain was torn and one sermon I listened to the um, three o'clock is when the ninth hour, right? From mm-hmm. the sixth to the ninth. And that would have been the hour that the um, the sacrifices were being made mm-hmm. in the temple. So there's my backgrounds in theater. And I was saying to Jeff this morning, can you even imagine being in the temple, doing your sacrifice, <laughs> and that curtain rips from top to mm. bottom? I, that, I mean, there had to be a... Pentecostal. <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe they didn't know what it meant, but it just gave access to, like you were saying, it it widened the uh, your, your TV show should cover that. You know, yeah, yeah. I hope so. Yeah, yeah. I hope so. Um, <laughs> you know, it was a place of teaching. It was a place of worship community. We know that about the temple, and then on at the cross, God expanded the temple, and now He says in in Corinthians that our bodies are the temple of the yeah. Holy Spirit. Um, I, I, I just, we could spend weeks discussing the significance of the curtain being torn, but you know, let's not miss the, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think as you were speaking, I was even just being reminded of what, you know, this huge discourse that he had about how the temple it's, it's done. Right. And we know that there is going to be in 72 or whatever, the destruction of the temple. Uh, but in a way, everything that he said about the temple, the temple's done just came true because it's like you're in there and it's like the whole reason why the temple is set up is to try and right. uh, get access to God, covered access to God. And you're in there, like you said, you're making like you're making your sacrifices and all of a sudden the thing rips and like it's exposed now. And you're like, oh, guess i don't need this anymore <laughs> you know like what's the point in all the sacrifice if that thing it just ripped in half and is fully exposed um access to god you know i think another thing that this shows us is mark has been huge his whole the whole book has been huge on this insider outsider theme and the people who should be on the inside are actually on the outside the people who should be on the outside are being brought into the inside and so the curtain rips in two and the first person to make this confession that he is a son of god is an outsider of outsiders exactly. right and i even think that would hopefully give some evangelistic hope to the roman audience receiving this letter of like these are the people that you're ministering to and these are the people that god is bringing in yes they might be persecuting you but these are who god wants you to proclaim the gospel to to bring in and here's evidence that it's possible even a Roman centurion confesses that he is the son of God, you know? And so I think there's just so much here. And then even thinking, how does that apply for us? Who are the people that we think are a lost cause? Um, but God is trying to tell us like, no, this is who I'm after. You know, these people in your life who you think are a lost cause. So, uh, yeah, a lot, a lot here. Um, we could get into, let's look, let's go into chapter 16 real quick. So we're gonna talk about a couple of things. Um, in verse seven, you have the angels um, telling to the woman, um, the women there. They, uh, the angel says, uh, "Go tell his disciples and Peter." <laughs> right? We've talked about this before. Go tell his disciples 
and Peter, uh, what is the significance here of that assignment the angels are giving? Go tell his disciples and Peter. What do you all think? It's a great verse about shame and gospel encouragement that Peter would have thought, I don't, not even a disciple, not even worthy of, of anything. And, you know, who am I? And <clears throat> that the message is marked out for him singularly. Like, um, we need to hear that because yeah. we're like Peter ourselves. Yeah. So from the time Peter denied Christ in the end of 14, we don't hear about him at all. Can you, I mean, again, can you imagine those days must have been the most difficult, dark days mm-hmm. for Peter. So I'm assuming, you know, that he was hearing, he knew what was going on, mm-hmm. but the grief that he would have carried would have been, um, I, I would question whether or not he even considered himself still a disciple, you know? Like, would Jesus have even wanted him right. to be there if I, I know they didn't expect the resurrection, but, you know, was there any hope for me is what mm-hmm. I think Peter was probably asking. And the answer is yes. I mean, most people think Amen. this is Peter's uh, discourse to John Mark and that John Mark is taking good notes and that the gospel of Mark is heavily influenced by Peter. Yeah. This is the only gospel that, that includes this mm-hmm. and Peter comment. Yeah. 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 Becca, anything to add? No. no. Think- yeah. No, I think you guys covered it. And, you know, Jesus had said in chapter 14, you know, I'm going before you to Galilee. And, um, you know, now there's that he's the promise that he is going before us is true. And it's even true for Peter, who was a colossal train wreck. Um, and, yeah, it's just so much words of I, you look at uh by the way, this is one of the reasons why I think verses nine to twenty are un- uncharacteristic of Jesus, because you look at all the accounts and he's so gracious to his disciples after the resurrection. So gracious. You don't see words of condemnation or judgment uh for their denial and their abandonment. Um uh but in nine to twenty you do. It says he's like, I think I forget, uh, like rebuking them and you know, for their unbelief and, and all that. And uh, but what you see here is just, yeah, he's go tell his disciples and Peter, I am going before you. Um, and that is a real encouragement to all of us who know we have train wrecked, uh, multiple times. So, well, let's, uh, for those who uh, are listening, we're going to get into a little bit of what could, I guess, be maybe a bit of a nerdy discussion here, but I hope if you continue listening, you will get some good insight, not just on Mark, but maybe how to weigh some biblical evidence when you're discussing, you know, is something original or not? And and what does that mean? So if you're following along in your Bible, uh, hopefully you have uh, some good notes that show you that uh, verses nine to 20. So if I'm looking at my ESV right now. It says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include nine to 20. And so then it kind of raises this question of, do we include nine to 20? Uh, do we include it as authoritative? Is it a part of canon? Is it uh, you know, legit on the same level of, of the rest of scripture. And I think there's actually kind of three questions that could be asked here about, um, you know, this, this section of scripture. And uh, the three questions are this. Number one is chapter 16, verse eight, the original ending or not. Okay. Is verse eight, the original ending or not? The second question is nine to 20 original or not? Is nine to 20 original or not? 
And the third question is, if we say no to question one, if we say that verse eight was not the original ending, what can we determine what the original ending was? Uh, so in other words, you could say eight is not the original ending. Nine to 20 is not the original ending. So what was the original ending? I'm going to go for so. no for all three. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk, let's talk about why. Let's talk about, so I had, so I've changed my mind on this. I, coming into this, I had just kind of always heard and loosely studied that verse eight was the original ending because Mark was leaving it open-ended to elicit a response of faith uh, from the, from the audience because verse eight ends with, uh, you know, the women fled, they were in fear, they were trembling, astonished, and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. And it was supposed to, I always heard it was to elicit this response of, will you respond with faith? Uh, because they've responded with, with fear sort of. And, and so that's just, yeah, okay. So verse eight, and then I come into it and I've actually changed my mind now and so i don't know uh tammy you said beforehand don't call on you at least not first becca i don't know if you want to add anything or if this is just going to be maybe a little bit of charlie and i kind of going back and forth i think charlie and i ultimately end on the same point and on the same page i think it'd be good for people to hear like how do we weigh evidence here and what are some of the reasons why we come to our conclusions well i know you 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 did a lot of homework on this so i'll let you mainly talk about it but i think when you look at verse nine of the text, and all of a sudden, your <clears throat> Mary Magdalene has already been referred to three times. And in chapter 15, twice, we're told verse 40, verse 47, and then 16, 1. So we get Mary Magdalene three times. And now you're telling me in verse 9, oh, yeah, she had the one that had cast out seven demons, like, <laughs> like, uh, uh, wow. this, what, what do you call it, like a red herring? I mean, it's like, or something. It's like, this does not fit the argument like you, she's already been mentioned we were already it introduces with, her like a new character yeah it's but like we already this, are familiar yeah. With her. Yeah. and so that doesn't work um and then um there's no subject in verse nine in the original and it's assuming a supplied that jesus has been the subject of verse eight which he's not so that doesn't fit and so then when you and then when you look at just the text itself and you're thinking okay where does anybody drink deadly poison like and and it will not hurt them. Like some of the things they just don't we're not seeing the other things you actually can you could make a reference to, but that is just bizarre. Yeah. So I think um even though the majority of manuscripts have verse nine to twenty, the majority is not the earliest. And yeah. so smaller usually means earlier and things get added on to over time. So um the earliest manuscripts, several of the biggies, don't have verse 9 to 20. So for me, I couldn't, and this is where I would say the same with um, John 8, 1 to 11, with the woman caught in adultery. Um, I would never preach this because I, to preach the word of God, I would never preach John 8, 1 to 11 because I don't believe it's in the original manuscripts. I don't believe that's, I think the story may have actually happened but I don't think John wrote the story about the woman caught in adultery. So I would never preach it. So you have to be consistent. Like if you really believe that that this is the word of God, then you would be bound that you must preach it if you're preaching through John. But the flip side is if you don't believe it's the word of God and in the original manuscript, or, you know, this is what Mark wrote down, then you then you're by conscience would not be allowed to preach that. And so I would not preach the long ending of that. Now, the question you're asking, Ben, about then 
I don't, I'm just much more open-ended as to, I, it doesn't, it seems like too abrupt of an ending in verse eight. So I'm just more of like, I don't know what happened to the very end of, of Mark. There's different po- uh, hypothesis. I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, well, let me, yeah, I, I did, I, I did some homework cause I was actually kind of surprised at what I was finding. And, um, uh, I did, I did change my mind on this. And I, I realized, you know, I kind of had this binary question of is verse eight, the ending, the original ending, or is verses nine to 20, the original ending. And I realized like that might be too binary of a question. Maybe there was another, like an extended ending that we have lost, which then gets into, okay, so verse eight is what we have and it's sufficient for us with what we have. And which is why we then also need, you know, um, Matthew and Luke kind of rounding this out for us. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I, I thought that verse eight was the original intended ending. And so let me give you a couple reasons why, uh, scholars argue against nine to 20. Uh, and then I'll talk about why some scholars argue for verse eight and then why some others think that's not, neither of those are persuasive. Um, so like Charlie said, uh, the um, 9 to 20 is not in original earliest manuscripts. Uh, our oldest manuscripts of the Bible, which would be uh, Codex Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, uh, don't have it. Uh, Clement of Rome, who Clement was a disciple of John, right? So he's, you know, late first century, early second century Clement. He, you said disciple of John? I mean, Polycarp was a direct Yeah, Poly- and then Clement was then a Clement, Polycarp. Clement was Polycarp. Yeah, yeah, okay. So second generation disciple from John. Uh, so very early. Uh, Clement of Rome, Origen, also very early, show no awareness of um, verses 9 to 20. Uh, Eusebius, who's an early church historian. Uh, Jerome, another early church leader. They argued that 9 to 20 was absent from their earliest manuscripts. So there's a lot of other evidence that just says this is not early. We're probably talking was added maybe 130, 140 AD. It was kind of like when you start to see it being added on uh, uh, to Mark. Uh, and as Charlie said, verse 9 is also a very strange transition from verse 8. Mary's introduced in a way that just doesn't make sense. And so it doesn't seem um, doesn't seem to fit. And so it points to this is probably not the original intended ending. And so then many, many good scholars today would respond and say, so that makes verse eight the original ending. And one of the main reasons that's put forward is not necessarily because of textual evidence, but because of what they think Mark is trying to force on the reader. Uh, so they'll say something like, you know, well, this sober ending in Mark demands that readers, um, think about the cross and think about discipleship and what that means for their life rather than taking refuge in a like victorious and triumphant savior. Or they'll say, since original Jewish disciples didn't get the message, this is meant to be open-ended uh, for all those who will receive the message from Mark. Or others will say, you know, the women responded in fear. Mark is trying to say, well, you respond um, in faith, right? And, and these kinds of things, like trying to push a response on the reader. But a lot of scholars today, uh, well, not a lot. I, th- I think there's a strong minority are now pushing back against that and saying, you know, that's really more of a modern literary technique. You don't really see ancient people leaving, ancient writers leaving like open-ended to to force a response from readers. That's more of like a modern literary thing. And so we're forcing a modern technique on an ancient text. So that doesn't, they'll say that doesn't really work. Um 
And so one one example is James Edwards, who I've used a lot. I've I compared him though to two other scholars on this. Um, you know, he says that Mark left the gospel open ended is more due to modern literary theory. And so he um, he says there are some arguments uh, for putting an addition, you know, putting nine to twenty on. Um, he he says, you know, it's hard to imagine that a gospel that begins with a bold announcement of divine sonship would end with fear and panic. Um, and so he just says like 16, eight doesn't really seem to work uh, with, with what Mark has been writing. He says, it's uh, strange for Mark to conclude with a, re- uh, without a real resurrection appearance as the other gospels do. The other gospels have the resurrection appearance. Mark does not. Uh, third, um, Edwards points out that verse eight ends with a conjunction in the Greek. It ends with four. So we, and you know, in, in our English, we say, you know, for they were afraid, but in the Greek, that for is the last word. Um, and, uh, Edward says in all of like our surviving kind of ancient Greek books, there are only three known examples of other books ending with a conjunction like this. And so, you know, Mark doesn't do it anywhere else. The other gospel writers don't do it anywhere else. And so it kind of just leads us to think it was broken off or incomplete, um, Edwards also points out that this effect of fear and bewilderment of the women wouldn't have had a good effect on Mark's audience that was already like in fear because they're being persecuted. So it's not really a great ending uh, for the audience. And so Edwards concludes, you know, he says verse eight is not original, but then he goes on and he says, but that does not make nine to 20 uh, original. It just means that verse eight probably in his words is not where it ended. And um, I think that again, was not really a, an option I'd considered that just because verse eight maybe wasn't the original intention doesn't mean that nine to 20 is. And Edwards, so Edwards kind of concludes nine to 20 was a good impulse from the Christian community to finish a story that had been cut off. Um, and so I think that's a good place to land. So then Edwards goes on and uh, he tries to speculate maybe what was Mark's original ending. And uh, Edwards and uh, R.T. France are actually in agreement here. So the only person who cares about me talking about R.T. France is Mike Nola, who hopefully will <laughs> listen to this. Um, but uh, James Edwards and, and, and R.T. France agree on this, that uh, Matthew parallels Mark very strongly up until Mark ends here. And so both uh, James Edwards and uh, R.T. France say that Mark's original ending is probably much like Matthew 28 with a resurrection appearance, Jesus passing on authority to his disciples and giving you know a great commission uh, to them. And so that's their their speculation is Mark had ended with that. Matthew got then his chapter 28 from Mark. Uh, but then we lost that piece uh, from Mark somehow. Uh, so that's kind of like more where where I uh, where I would land probably is not maybe not putting a lot of weight on that speculation, uh, but saying yeah we probably it seems like we maybe lost whatever the original original ending of verse eight is, and then I think that just get, raises the question of how do you preach that and what do you tell people. Um, and how do we interpret that? Okay, if we've lost it, we can't say scripture is insufficient or that, you know, we lost something that we should have had. This is all, you know, God has given us scripture, but it does just kind of, yeah, I'm not really quite sure <laughs> if I was preaching through Mark, how I would end it yet, um, how you would just leave it with with verse eight there. Um, but uh, yeah, so a lot goes into weighing some of this biblical evidence and um, 
Hope that was helpful for those who were listening. Um, well, Tammy, I listened to a couple different sermons on yeah. the, on this chapter, hoping for a fabulous, um, yeah, resolution. But what they ended it with was basically verse seven. Um, he or verse six and seven. He is risen, mm. and they just ended with, "What does the resurrection mean for us?" And I love that you asked the first question, what are you most hopeful for this Advent season? The resurrection. I mean, that's, you know, in just studying this, I, what I kept hearing, what I kept reading was what does the resurrection mean for us as Christians? And um, as we dig into that, there is, there is nothing but hope this Advent season or any other day. Right. But just um, as we consider the price that Jesus paid, but the fact that he included Peter, he includes me, and the, and the resurrection is really where it ends. Yeah, We have to do something with yeah. that. The fact that he used women is awesome in my mind for, you know, reasons of, I mean, I think it's obvious, you know, I, I love that he included them, but yeah. if this story was made up, he would never have included them. Right. So just all kinds of reasons that it's, you know, it's authentic and, yeah. um, it's a game changer. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Well, how did you all enjoy uh, going through Mark by podcast? Do you like doing this? Yeah. 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 I, I did. Should we do it again <laughs> with something else? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we will. Uh, we will consider what might be next for season two. Uh, <laughs> but for now, uh, really grateful to those of you who have stuck with us on this podcast. Thanks for um, tuning in. We really hope this was helpful. Hope you. Gain some good insight from Gospel of Mark and maybe a new love or a fresh love for scripture. That was certainly our goal. And uh, if you have any feedback for us uh, or what you'd like to see us do for season two, reach out to us and let us know. But until then, we are signing off. Have a good Christmas, good new year, and uh, God's blessing on you all. Uh, We love you. Take care.